There was a time when I was an English professor. I still like books. If you read much from the pre-modern era of Western literature, one thing you'll notice pretty quickly is that there is greater honesty uh, in the pre-modern era about the human condition, about what we're like. Uh, late modern literature tends to weave fantasies, uh, and favorite fantasies are limitless potential, uh, boundless possibilities. Uh, late modernity crafts new fairy tales about humans uh, with supernatural powers. So I, I'm not talking just kids' literature. This is adult literature does this as well. Even dystopian fiction, you know, where the world has crumbled or it's uh, post-apocalyptic settings, society's broken down, there's oppression everywhere. Even in those kinds of settings for stories today, the problems get fixed by the discovery of greater human potential. So we wrecked everything, but somehow there's greater human potential in there. Uh, superpowers. There's always, how do we fix this thing? Uh, superpowers. Or scientific break, breakthroughs. There's this admission that science got us to the destruction, but it'll be scientific breakthroughs that get us through it. By contrast, when you read old books, you are given a world that acknowledges human limitations, that acknowledges self-deception, an inborn bent to selfishness, an inborn bent to destruction. You could say, folks like G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis did say this, pointed this out. You could say that this is the essential difference. This way of thinking is the essential difference between pre-modern and modern thinking. Is to say, pre-modernity assumes fallenness. Assumes limitation. Modernity declares otherwise. We are not fallen. We are not limited. In modern thinking, then, you can never lose your way because there is not a way to lose. We're saddled with this. You can never lose your way because there's no way to lose. You've just changed your circumstances. So just to give you a sense of the old message, here are the opening lines of Dante's Inferno, written around 1300. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. And thus Dante begins this allegorical journey. It's a journey of repentance and restoration. 300 years later, Edmund Spencer, favorite of mine, takes up the same imagery. And he begins his allegorical work, The Fairy Queen, with a Christian knight who's on a journey uh, with a lady who represents true faith. Uh, her name's Una. She means the one true faith, one truth. A bit of a storm drives them into a forest. They're just setting out on the journey where in this forest, led with delight, they, they thus beguile their way, wander, until the blustering storm is overblown. When weaning to return, whence they did stray, they cannot find that path 
which first was shown, but wander to and fro in ways unknown, furthest from end then when they nearest wean. Furthest from the end when they think that they're closest. Takes them, make, that makes them doubt their wits be not their own. Have we lost our minds as we wander? The mere fact that these works assume lostness, uh, wandering from the good way, wandering from a path, the objective reality of limits, powerlessness, all those things, just the fact of it, shows them as drawing on an understanding of a world very different from what we are soaking in. And in this sense, the message that Christians live by, just, just the Christian message, is pre-modern. It's out of step with modernity. It's out of sync. Our message then speaks prophetically to modernity and calls out the lies. I'm not just giving a recommendation to read old books. I am doing that. This is an apology for old books, yes. Uh, but what I'm leading to is that repentance, just the, the very idea of needing a change of mind, that there's something wrong in here that needs to be changed, corrected, brought back around, that, that there has to be a change of thinking in order to know God, that is an idea that modernity rejects out of hand. So without repentance, no one will see God. But modern psychological therapeutic assumptions of our culture that we live in rejects repentance from the start. So what we've entered into here, this season of Lent, which is a season of repentance, is nonsense to the world in which we live. It's as alien to our culture as walking backwards. We are that strange. What we're doing here is as strange as if you were to just start walking backwards. We are asking God as a whole people, as a whole people to the degree that each one of us asks, create anew, restore, renew in me. We've just sung it and we're going to keep singing that. Create anew, restore, renew what you intended me to be, which I and all those around me have wrecked and ruined. I have ruined in myself and I have been wrecked because we listened to the enemy of truth. So what I am saying then, as, as we begin this walk through Lent, right on the doorstep, is that we, the people of Christ, are assuming there are areas of our lives, areas of our thoughts, patterns of thinking, rooms in our minds, rooms in our hearts that are stuck in a forest dark. There are places of entanglement where we got lost. And whenever we go there, 
We feel stuck. We feel trapped. We feel lost. You might prefer the building analogy. There are places in us that are collapsed and are decayed ruins. Ways of thinking, ways of responding, emotional defaults. We just, we find ourselves in and it's ruinous. And when we look at the situation, we feel desperation. We feel desperate because we know we are not able to rebuild it. We're not able to fix what we've ruined. We've tried. As if you're aware of this thing in you, you've tried to fix it. You've wanted to be right. You've wanted to be holy. And so you, you went to that place and you picked up a couple of the stones and you stacked them on top of each other only to see it crumble. We've tried. I warn you at the outset, this is uncomfortable. Today is uncomfortable. The next six weeks are uncomfortable. Your instinct to self-preservation will be to say, leave this alone. You might even be saying, there might be a voice in you right now saying, stop listening to him. We have an instinct to leave it alone. Your instinct will urge you to justify yourself. It's not actually that bad of a dark forest. It's not actually that bad of a terrifying dark place. It's not that bad of a ruin. I can live in it. I can sit down here. Your instinct will urge you to blame and settle into bitterness. That is, uh, if you find this lost, crumbled place, it's because of them. It's because of what they did. And so you sit down on the heap and you just comfort yourself with that. I didn't do this. It's because of them. It's because of them. It's because of them. And whenever you come to that awareness of this broken place, you've got a message. It's because of them. That's bitterness. You are just sitting on the heaps. And you live a life of bitterness. And then many of the messages around you, including your friends, our dear friends, our dear well-meaning friends, will urge this same sort of avoidance. Because repentance will mean accepting uncomfortable truths. Namely, that you require help from God, that your friends are not enough. That your friends can't fix you. They don't want to deal with that uncomfortable truth either. Because it will mean saying, I do not have the tools to repair myself. Nor does this person have the tools to repair me. Nor the knowledge to find my way out. Only God can help me. So against these instincts, against uh, these cultural norms, that's what's out there, we are undertaking this journey because more than feeling comfortable, more, more than that, more than feeling happy 
in a day-to-day -day way, we want to be renewed. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be satisfied, joyous. We want to be joyous. We want to be made whole. And we know God has guaranteed it. And so we put our trust in his promises rather than in the cries and the demands and the complaints of our flesh, which say, don't deal with that. How does this work? If I can't save myself and I can't rebuild myself, what can I do? The ways of God, are, they are so counter to our ways. So we have to listen carefully to God's word. The ways of God will not just occur to us. The ways of God will not just settle in as knowledge without his word. We won't stumble into our healing. So what does, this is what we ask today. What does the story of God say about a person who's lost in a forest and doesn't know what to do? We look at the second page of existence, Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Please open the scriptures. And there we find a good and glorious forest. It's a garden forest. It's a perfect and harmonious world. And it has suddenly become dark and scary. It's not that the forest changed. It's the perfect garden. But something has changed in the gardeners. And so the forest has become for them a dark and scary place. So you know the story. God made a perfect world. So much so that, that the one who is perfection, the one who is goodness, called his world very good. He's the only one who's qualified to call it anything, and he called it very good. And it was what a world should be, and it was stewarded and kept by his own representatives, made in his image, ruling as he taught them to rule, man and woman. And the goodness of their stewardship, the goodness of their rule depended on them listening to his word doing as he taught them to do, following his instructions, because that's how they would know how to rule. That's how they would know how to live in this perfect order. And then it came into their minds by an external suggestion, Satan, who claimed to know better than God, that they could have a different level of satisfaction that they could have a higher degree of goodness. He never denies the goodness they have, but you could have a higher degree of it. You could have more significance. You could have more rule. This, they, they have imagination for this because they know God is higher than them. They know God has a level of goodness, being pure goodness, that they don't have. They know that the angels have more power than they do. So they, they can see there's difference. They can see amongst themselves that there's difference. Man, woman, they're different. So it was true, it was very true, that there were different kinds and qualities of goodness that was not given to both of them 
not given to them together. God had goodness they didn't have. And so Satan says, all you have to do to be like God, to have that, is to say that God is wrong and then act on it. And you get it. It's just, it's just a short step. Just say he's wrong and act. And that's what they did. And that's what we do. It's the same. That's simply what transgression is. We say God is wrong about something. Anything. He's wrong about how he ordered something. He's wrong about how he designed something, and we act on it. Wanting something good, because that's what we do, right? We don't, we don't sin because we think the thing we're after is, in that moment, we think we don't want that thing, so I'm going to go. We want it. There's something good about it. And we listen to some lie of Satan and take what is not meant for us. Not meant for us, or we take something in a time that is not intended, or we take a good thing in a way that it was not intended. And in the taking and in the way that we take, the goodness is robbed of it. So when the man and the woman took, their minds were changed. Their minds were changed. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This was not the promised addition. They were supposed to get goodness. And now they felt shame and self-consciousness. They were aware of themselves. They both craved and feared each other. This was not goodness, but this was knowledge poisonous. And then verse 8. In that, in that state, fearing each other, wanting each other, feeling sick, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. This is the garden of goodness, the garden of fellowship, the garden of friendship, the presence, the place of the presence of the Holy One. And comes the, comes the Holy One whose presence brings goodness and joy and contentment, who brings all the things they've loved. And he comes and suddenly those things have become frightening. They are lost and ruined. They cannot abide the presence of God. All that was made to give them happiness is now tainted. So lest we rush past this and rush past the point for us, this state of mind that, we're that we've been talking about this morning, this state of mind, the lostness, when we've got ourselves lost, 
when we have, uh, we have thought patterns that lead us back to the same place. When we tried fixing things, and we're so tired of trying to fix the thing, we're so tired of trying to repair ourselves that we just shut the door on the rubble. We are Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. This is the state we find ourselves in, hiding from the holiness of the Lord, hiding from his presence. And our still fallen flesh, that's us, renewed souls, still fallen flesh, wants it all to just go away because God's holiness hurts. Who he is hurts this fallen flesh when we have embraced the darkness. And it's in that state, it's in that place that God speaks. Where are you? Where are you? God knows where Adam and Eve are. Right? He's, he's the almighty God. He's not asking that question for his own information. He's looking right at them. Where are you? Where are you is for them. His question is for them. And it is not by uh, historical accident. It's not by literary accident. It's not by any accident that this is the first question that God asks of human beings. It's his first question to man. It's his foundational question. It's first, it's foundational. Uh, I can recall countless times in my life, and you probably can too, when my mind was in a swirl. My mind gets there for reasons unique to me, but yours unique to you. Someone hurt my feelings. Someone said a mean word to me. <laughs> Someone got something that I wanted probably praise, someone showed that I wasn't very valuable or important to them. Or other times, one friend of mine hurts another friend of mine, and I can't fix it. Or a person that I love was thinking badly and choosing badly. And I knew that things would end badly. And so in these times, I feel confused. I feel, I feel bad. I feel worried. I, I don't like what's happened. I don't like what was said. I don't like the way that I'm feeling. I'm sad. I'm mad. Yeah, confusion. Uh, I'm unhappy. And I get cross. The world is not going like I want it to go. This is not how I wanted things to be. That's the trees of the garden. That is my crumbled vision. How I wanted things to go is not how it's going. And I will stay there. I will sit in that place and you will sit in that place too. Until you grow quiet. We'll be in that swirl. Some, some phrase running through your mind, some conversation just going over and over and over and over. We will stay there until we get 
quiet. And if we stop thrashing and stop justifying ourselves and start listening, the first and the foundational question that you'll hear is from God. Where are you? He knows where you are. He wants you to know it too. Where, where are you right now? There are many different answers to that question. Where are you? When God asks it, if you're listening to him, in the wake of the question will come knowledge, will come grace. When God asks a question, his voice always brings grace along with it. And first, it brings the grace of clarification. That is a true account of the situation. If you're hearing him, his question is enabling you. Where are you? Him asking it enables you to say, I'm lost. That's where I am. I'm lost. I'm afraid. I'm upset at how things are going. I'm in a place where it feels like everyone is against me. And if, his, if you're hearing him, if you're hearing his question, his grace will also enable you to see your part in the situation. His grace will enable you to own your part. So his voice gives power to admit instead of justify. Our flesh will always justify. Without his grace, we do not have the power to admit, to stop justifying, to own, and to say, yes, they did all that. They did that. But I ran in here. They did, I, did, I cannot be put here. I ran in here. I chose how to respond. Whatever it was, I chose how to respond. And I wanted good that I didn't get. And so I tried to get it in my way. And if you're a Christian, this is the gathered worship of Christians. I mean, if you are somebody who has God's spirit because you accepted his forgiveness and you surrendered to him as the Lord, so he gave you his spirit, then God's question, where are you, always comes with this life-giving knowledge. Where are you? Where are you? You are in me, and I am in you. Whatever you feel, the truth is you are in me, and I am in you. So if we'll listen to the first question, the first question, the foundational question, where are you? It is assuring. The Lord says, I know where you are. I'm looking at you, and I've never stopped looking at you. Remember how I said I will never leave you or forsake you? 
So this is security. This grace, the grace of the steadfast love of God, that is what allows the next questions. And for the rest of Lent, we'll be talking about the next questions. Other questions God asks to us. As we are repenting, as we are asking for a change of mind, if we take the posture of repentance, this is what happens. He begins to ask questions. So we have to be alert to it. These are questions that root out. These are questions that prune, that repair. But you can't get to the next questions. These are the questions that heal and restore and repair until you listen to the first one. Where are you? Until you own it. Until we acknowledge where we are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when you called our names and you gave us your spirit, you drew us into yourself and you established a bond that cannot be broken, that is higher and stronger and wider and deeper than any other power that would attempt to wrench us away from you. Thank you for your steadfast love and for assuring us of where we are. Amen.